3ABN Australia Radio would like to welcome you to Songs of Praise.
man has his beliefs, his own point of view on everything from big to small. Some of them we must defend with everything we've got. Some of them don't matter much at all You can speak out every time You think that you were right Hold your ground until the end You can rattle tooth and nail In each and every Might even lose some friends But when you give up yourself You are strong as a man can be It's the hardest thing that you will ever do When you give up yourself Do you know? 
Stay tuned to 3ABN Australia Radio for more inspirational music. you will 
I tried to give you my best, climb up so high above all the rest to a lofty perch. Somehow I deserve to finally see you there. I pulled myself up. Stood on my pride to get high enough, expecting that I would see your face from my lofty place. But there was just thin air. Now I'm on my knees and I'm off my perch. My head out of the clouds, looking through the eyes of humility, I finally see you now here on my knees.
Psalm 34, 1 I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be in my mouth.
This is Songs of Praise, a message in music to draw you closer to God.
Yeah. 
look forward to your company next time on Songs of Praise. Bye for now and may God bless you. Today, in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we are continuing Banish the Night by the late missionary pilot and pastor Len Barnard, read by Clive Nash. The book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of Pacific Press and is available in print and digital editions online. Continuing Chapter 11, Challenging Cora and Kibi Ibiri. I thought of the poem by Linda Hanbury. So we thank you, Fuzzy Wuzzies, for all that you have done, not only for Australia, but for every mother's son. And we're glad to call you friends, though your colour may be black, for we know that Christ walked with you on the Owen Stanley track. Upon returning to headquarters, I selected several stronger workers to man the difficult posts among these cannibals. Calling the churches together for a special meeting, I threw out the challenge of Karamui to them, and several young men volunteered to unite with the experienced workers there. After the airstrip was opened, Moyi and his family moved into the tribe whose chief had seen the face of Jesus in the clouds. The group responded to his message and soon built new huts, one for each family unit. Sanitation and hygiene were organised, a commodious church arose on the site of the long community dwelling, and in place of the mournful dirge for the departed, there was the joyful praise to the God above the clouds. And instead of the bones of cannibal feasts drying in the sun, there were platforms heaped with tithe from the gardens. At the mission outpost, adjacent to the airstrip, we stationed Odo, a trained orderly, to give medical care. The local chief had a son about nine years of age, and both regularly attended worship services. When the boy became sick, Odo treated him as an outpatient, and when he stopped coming for medicine, Odo presumed he had recovered. 
but in fact his mother had refused to allow him to receive medicine, administering her own concoctions until the worsting boy died. Three days later, Odo and Paul, another orderly, heard of the boy's death and went to visit the parents. Inside the hut, a group of hysterical women relatives were wailing loudly and caressing the body. When Odo asked the mother if they could bury the body, she and the other relatives objected noisily. The following day, the orderlies returned with a coffin made from a medicine case lined with bandaged material. The stench of the body was intolerable, and the women, devoid of reason, refused to allow the men to place the body in the makeshift coffin. Revolted, Odo fled the hut, violently sick. Determined to do their duty, the two men returned on the fifth day with the coffin and several other people. It was useless to reason any more. So, ignoring the objecting women, Odo and Paul placed the boy's remains in the casket. Burying the dead was a strange new custom to the villagers who gathered to witness. The chief looked on while Sukua and several helpers dug his son's grave. Using a picture roll depicting the second coming of Christ, Odo spoke animatedly of the resurrection of the dead, particularly stirring to the father. The boy's body was buried in the family garden at the father's request, for here the lad had loved to play while his father worked. The chief, tired of the depravity of heathenism and longing for peace and security, wanted to see his son again above anything else. Following Odo's description of the resurrection, the chief confessed with tears his belief in Jesus' power to give life. Would Odo give him the picture roll so that he could hang it in his hut? He could look at it daily and pray to the giver of life. Thus, the first Christian burial was carried out in this area so long ruled by the powers of darkness. Today, Christian interment is customary. These people no longer cringe in fear at the mention of the evil spirits Korah and Kibi Ibiri. The gloom of cannibalism has given place to the glow of a celestial light, and they exclaim, truly, the light is sweet. Leading the party who dug the first grave in Karamui was Sokuba, the man who had volunteered to accompany Moyi on his initial journey here. When Moyi moved to the fringe of the Karamui Plateau, it was Sakua who had accompanied him and had helped him build the new station. Then Sakua offered to move with Moyi and his family into Karamui, where for months he toiled until another mission station arose in the jungle. When Odo was sent to set up a new clinic, it was Sakua who faithfully worked with him until the structure was completed. He received no regular pay, but was supplied with clothing and soap. His reward was in seeing the gospel change the lives of these desperately needy people and in watching the sick recover their health. On one of my visits to Karamui, Odo told me that Sokuba was sick and that his gums would not stop bleeding. Examining Sokuba, I discovered that he was extremely anemic. It nearly broke his heart when I told him he would have to go to Dugoroka with me. He did not want to leave the people and the work he loved so deeply. In the plain, Sukuwa was pensive for a while. Then, with tears in his eyes, he said, Me no run away along work belong God. Behind sick ye finish, me like go back along Karamui. I'm not running away from God's work. When I'm well, I want to return to Karamui. But this was not to be. Shortly afterward, he died of leukemia, 
awaiting the voice of his Saviour, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Slowly, the number of mission stations increased in the area, including two medical clinics with wide-ranging staff. Tropical ulcers and yaws were almost eradicated after a few months, but malaria, the killer, was there, and leprosy, the crippler, was there. Chapter 12. Genevi, the Killer Me like stop-along mission, requested Genevi, the dreaded heathen sorcerer, when I stationed at Homu. His coming to live on the mission compound was for him the end of a long road of revengeful lust and the beginning of a bright new life. Until recently, Genevi had been the terror of the surrounding area. A few pigs or shells were sufficient to bribe him to kill anyone's real or imagined enemies. This was sometimes done by sorcery, when something belonging to the prospective victim was brought to Kenevi. After elaborate incantations and rituals, poison was made against the victim who usually died. Direct methods of murder he also used. With lowered eyes, Kenevi now told how he would pursue his victims at night with bow and arrow or spear. Stalking them like a ballet dancer performing a dance of death, he would walk on the tips of his toes to confuse his trackers. He waylaid and killed many an unsuspecting person. As our missionaries advanced into this district, Kenevi dreamed several troubling dreams, each with a recurring theme— the son of the great God above the clouds was coming back to this earth to save all who faithfully followed him. In one dream which particularly filled him with terror, he was surrounded by fire with no possibility of escape. He expected to be consumed, but only the tips of his fingers, toes, ears and nose were burned. Trembling with fear as he lay on the ground, Kenevi was troubled to know what the dream meant. At this moment... A bright being approached, and raising him up by the hand, told him that he must prepare for the coming of the great King Jesus. At this time, the incurable disease Kuru was making repeated inroads on Kenevi's family. His wife and one daughter had died, and now his only remaining child, an eleven-year-old daughter, the joy of his life, was smitten. So it was a broken-hearted sorcerer who came to the mission requesting refuge, convinced that his past evil ways were the reason for his calamities, and believing these were just retribution. Now he wanted to learn all that this man Jesus had taught when he was on earth. Then he would go back to his village to follow this wonderful Jesus, to win as many people as he had killed, and to prepare them for his coming. Sorcery is common in New Guinea, and it takes many forms. To these heathen who have no knowledge of germs, a person never dies from disease. To them, death is caused by a member of an enemy tribe. The problem is then to find the guilty one. Lomdopa, the son of a sorcerer and heir to his father's trade, told me some of the methods sorcerers use to discover the supposed wrongdoer. The corpse is wrapped in pandanus leaves or bark and placed on a platform supported by four poles approximately five feet high. At night, several men wait silently nearby until a dull light is seen over the body. 
A chosen man walks to the platform and taps a post calling each time the name of a suspected culprit. When the right name is called, the body shakes violently and four men rush forward and hold the posts to prevent the body from falling. The man thus condemned is marked for death. In another method, a man sits atop a hut and sings out to the spirits in a low mystical voice. Other men are posted among the huts of the enemy tribe to watch. After some time, the spirit appears in the form of a dull light. The man on the hut calls for an arrow with a burning point, which he shoots into the air. Mysteriously, the light sweeps swiftly back and forth across the sky, while the arrow falls harmlessly to the ground nearby. Suddenly, the light shoots downward and alights upon the victim's hut, lingering briefly. The spies, hiding among the huts, carry the news back to the village, and preparations are made to destroy the man whose hut was indicated by the spirit. To these men, this system is rational. They believe that it ensures their survival. To them, if one killing is not avenged, the enemy may become emboldened and eventually kill the entire tribe. Although, theoretically, education should help these primitive people understand and explain the relationship between disease and death, as a Christian medical doctor, I have found in practice that the simple gospel provides the only full and complete antidote for the lustful killings between tribes. Please, sir, one fellow Mary die finish. Sir, a girl has died, gasped a breathless New Guinean one day. According to his story, Seba, who lived a mile away, had fastened a piece of bush twine around her neck and had jumped from a high tree. Finding her lying on the ground, this relative had rushed to tell me what had happened. I had started to console him when he casually remarked, Emmy no die finish yet. Emmy pull him wind lick lick. She is not dead yet. She is still breathing a little. Chiding him for not telling me this earlier, I rushed to the clinic for an ampule of adrenaline and a sterile syringe. Then we jumped into the Land Rover, and in a few minutes we were beside the unconscious girl. Her pulse was barely perceptible. An injection and artificial respiration slightly improved her condition, and we were able to take her to the mission station. Twenty-four hours later, Seba regained consciousness. Slowly opening her eyes, she smiled wanly. Later, she told me this story. Tune in again next week for the next episode of Banish the Night, written by Len Barnard and read by Clive Nash. Let's listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Asaph was an important person in Israel in the music area and he has also written Psalm 83 and it is a prayer to thwart the enemy. Do not remain silent any longer, O God. Do not remain quiet nor be still. Hear the noise. Your enemies are in an uproar, and those who hate you are proud in their haughtiness. They have consulted and made cunning plans against your people. 
scheming evil things to hurt your precious sheep. Their aim was known when they said, Come now, let us eliminate them as a nation, that no one will even remember the name of Israel. They have all agreed as one man. They have taken an oath that they will oppose you, the people of Edom and the Ishmaelites, the Moabites and the Hagarites, Gebel, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the people of Tyre and Assyria have joined to add their forces to the descendants of Lot. Deal with them as you did with Midian and Sisera, and as you did with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who came to his end at Endor, whose remains were as waste on the earth. Make their princes like Oreb and Zeb, all their mighty ones like Zeba and Zalmanna, who said, Let us invade the land of Israel and take possession of their lush pastures. O oh my God, make these your enemies like the dust that blows in the wind, like the chaff that is left to rot after the harvest. Be like the fire that sets the forest aflame and burns across the face of the mountains, and pursue your enemies like the ocean's fierce storm, till they shudder and shake in the tempest. Make their faces reveal their shame, so that men may be turned back to you, O Lord. Let them be confused and dismayed ever after. Let them experience an ignominious end. Then the world will know that you alone are the Lord, that you are the Most High who rules over the earth.